You can go ahead and have a seat. It is great to be with you here this morning. This is our second week of two services. It's Labor Day. Um, it's really good to be gathered together in worshiping the Lord. My name is Peter. I'm also one of the priests here. If you're a guest, again, we're so glad you're here. According to Bruce Springsteen, everybody, yeah, all right, right off the bat, yes. Like, they're like, Bruce, I'm here for the Bruce Springsteen references. <laughs> Everyone's got a hungry heart, right? In the song titled, Hungry Heart, Bruce sings, everybody needs a place to rest. Everybody wants to have a home. Don't make no difference what nobody says. Ain't nobody like to be alone. That's some odd using of the double negative, but it's straightforward enough. Everyone is hungry. Everyone has these longings. But perceptively, Springsteen also identifies in the song how this hunger causes us to do crazy, inexplicable things, driven mad by appetites and longings, like a river that doesn't know where it's flowing. I took a wrong turn and just kept going. Later on, we fell in love. I knew it had to end. We took what we had and we ripped it apart. Sing it, Bruce. Some of us, I think, can identify with those sentiments, hungry hearts, a wound that doesn't heal, mad in our dissatisfaction. Today is our second to last sermon in this epic chapter, John 6. Our reading this morning continues what is sometimes referred to as Jesus' bread sermon where he expounds upon, he explains the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and his identity as the bread of life, the bread come down from heaven. And our text this morning sees a continuation of some of the themes we've already explored in previous weeks. But there's also this intensification here of the offense, the scandal of what Jesus is claiming. You see that in the grumbling of the crowd in verse 41 and in their argument among themselves in verse 52, but also in some of Jesus' own descriptions of what it means to lay hold of the life he offers. This morning, as we seek to hear the word of the Lord in our hunger, in our longings in this passage and consider its implications for us, I'd like to group our thinking around three headings. First, the God who feeds us, Second, the God who feeds us himself. And then third, don't stop believing or feeding. <laughs> the 80s music references are thick. I see the heads, the heads shaking already for those of you who have ears to hear. But first, <laughs> the God who feeds us. The Enuma Elish is, was the dominant story of creation at the time in which Genesis 1 would have been written, originally composed. And it's clear that the biblical story of creation was written in conversation, in dialogue, with this dominant narrative. The scholar Abigail Favela, in her remarkable book, The Genesis of Gender, which is grappling with contemporary questions of gender and drawing them near to the Genesis story, points out, in that book, I'd recommend that book, points out that stories of origin, stories of creation in the ancient world we're fundamentally answering questions of identity and purpose. Why and who are we? And two striking features of the Enuma Elish are first, how violently chaotic the creation of the world is. It involves this clash of gods, the killing of one, and the using of that corpse, her corpse, to create the universe. And all of that suggests, if you take that as the story of reality, that 
The world, the universe, are fundamentally chaotic, insecure, violent places. The second feature that's striking is the role of human beings in this insecure world. They function in the Enuma Elish to provide food for the gods, ensuring that these divine beings, divine masters, are gratified, are satisfied. Human beings were made for toil, to feed others. If you are at all familiar with the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, I think you can already imagine some of the differences. But what I want to suggest to you today is that while the specific details of the Enuma Elish are obviously not like live to us today, you don't meet many followers of Marduk in your life, <laughs> these two features, this idea that the world is a violent and chaotic place and that human beings exist for toil, continue to inform our lives, our actions. And I want to suggest then that this is background to help us understand the good news of what Jesus is declaring to us in John 6. Jesus here claims to reverse the logic of this dominant story. Rather than human beings existing to slavishly satisfy the appetites of the gods, Jesus' declaration that he is the bread of life, come down from heaven offering life, suggests that the order of things is in fact precisely the opposite. That God is longing to satisfy our needs, that God feeds human beings, that God feeds us. This radical reversal of our understanding helps us make sense of Jesus' actions throughout the Gospel of John, throughout the Gospel. The reverse logic is something like this, that he who is the Word with God takes on flesh, offering himself to us, that we who are flesh might become the children of God, partakers of him and his life. It is exactly the opposite. And the language that Jesus uses here in chapter 6 in our passage this morning suggests that God's posture is not at all indifferent about this offering. His claim in verse 44 that no one comes to him, comes to Jesus, unless the Father draws them attests to God's desire to woo, to attract people to the bread and food he offers. Think of, of Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He has regarded the lowly and he has filled the hungry with good things because it delights him to do so. That is who Jesus knows God to be, that he longs to be sat down at table with us, with the choices of food and drink available to us. What Jesus is saying is that God's desire, his fixed intention for you and for me is that we would be satisfied. He longs to provide for us, to feed us well. There are places you can go to eat where it almost seems like a point of pride that the service offered is indifferent, right? Like, take it or leave it. There it is. I don't even care. Whatever. But that is not who Jesus shows us that God is, that God is like. He is this serving God. That's what we see in the gospel. John 13, Jesus taking up the posture of a servant, showing us who God is. There are those other amazing restaurants, I don't know that I've ever been to them, but where the servers make suggestions and ask questions, what do you like? I think this would be a great option. You're gonna love it. That is the posture of God toward his creation, his people. He longs to see you satisfied. And this is not a new idea. It is there in Genesis one, right? Like 
You are free to eat from every tree in the garden. All of this is for you. All of this is for your satisfaction. They say you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. But Mary Poppins taught us, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And Jesus suggests here that the Father, God, is of the Poppins school, right? That he woos, he attracts people. He suggests that God is persistently, actively desiring that you would taste and see that he is good. His longing is that you would be satisfied. It's Labor Day, tomorrow. Labor Day was first celebrated September 5th, 1882 in New York City. And it was first thought of as a celebration of the social and economic achievements of the American workers, specifically kind of like blue collar workers, very cool. But the truth of the matter is that many of us experience our work in a fallen and broken world as toil, as drudgery. Our lives become marked by this sense of slavish adherence, marked by profound insecurity requiring all-encompassing devotion. And there are all kinds of reasons why we might experience work in such a way. But the notion that the world is essentially a lonely, chaotic, and insecure place, and that our existence is one of unbroken toil, informs that experience, informs that posture. It marks our lives, perhaps, with a sense of heavy obligation, like we have to get it done. It is all dependent upon us. We're alone with these things that must be done. It also can mean our lives are kind of marked by this, like, binge and purge flipping back and forth, this almost nihilistic hedonism, right? Like satisfy your desires and longings on Saturday and Sunday, eat, drink, be merry, lose yourself because tomorrow is Monday and it's an 80-hour work week. That's own form of drudgery. Toward the end of his life, Vincent van Gogh painted uh, one of his final paintings, The Prisoner's Round, and I think we have it as a slide up here. It's supposed that Van Gogh himself is the, the central figure at the bottom of the circle there. And Van Gogh was never a prisoner. But it seems that something of the claustrophobic, dreary prison scene was a picture of his interior life. For some of us, living within a worldview of obligation and intermediate release, this image captures something of our experience. But the good news that Jesus declares in John 6 is that such a worldview is not in line with reality. That God desires something other than this experience for us. That our lives are not meant for toil, for drudgery, and that we're not alone in a chaotic, unfriendly universe. But that the Father, the Creator, knows our longings and needs, made us with those longings and needs, and desires to meet them, to feed us, to give us life, abundant life. In your work and in your life, you are not left to your own devices. God has and does provide for us in our physical necessities, but also in these deeper, more profound ways, in the unspoken longings and groanings that animate our life. He satiates the hungry heart. You can move to the logo. And he satisfies these deeper longings by feeding us with himself. And that's our second heading. It's also where things start to get very weird. 
Believe it or not, cannibalism is having its moment in pop culture. Whether it's Timothy Chalamet in the movie Bones and All, or the, the girls' soccer team stranded in the TV show Yellow Jackets, neither of which I've seen, thank you very much, cannibalism is not my scene, not my choice of entertainment. But it's having a moment. And hearing Jesus' words in our passage today, you can hear like the surface level offensiveness of them. Like in verse 52, the crowd is like, how is this guy going to offer his flesh to us? Is Jesus into cannibalism before it was cool? This charge was in fact leveled against the church when they first began celebrating the Lord's Supper as rumor of it spread and they're talking about eating the flesh and blood of Jesus. People are like, what is going on in these gatherings? What does it mean for Jesus to offer his body, his blood to be consumed? The offense and scandal is actually deeper than what we might think on the surface. Beyond the gross thought of cannibalism, Jesus' words here regarding feeding on him, the claim that he makes of not simply offering life-giving bread, but being life-giving bread, had a particular offensive quality for Jesus' Jewish hearers, who had their identity marked out by particular dietary restrictions, right? They were required to eat certain things and not eat certain things, among them, blood. Don't eat blood is one of the basic markers of the Old Testament law regarding food. And so Jesus' claim to offer his body is offensive, is a scandal to such hearers. And even more than his claim to offer himself to all, to anyone who would receive him as the bread of life, is even more, deepens the scandal, deepens the offense. Jesus is saying that all that stuff doesn't matter. He's offering himself beyond the Jews themselves who saw their diet as this particular expression of their identity as God's people. And he's saying that doesn't matter. In fact, you've got to eat my blood. Jesus' offering here makes clear that ancestry and right lineage do not matter ultimately. He says it twice. He's like, your ancestors got manna and guess what? They died. He repeats it for them. He's saying these identity markers are no longer in my life defining for God's people. What matters is receiving me. And multiple times, whoever, anyone, all, repeatedly, he is emphasizing anyone can get in on this. That the Father draws and woos people from far beyond the confines of any one particular group, far beyond those who do and get it right. For Jesus' Jewish audience, this would have been profoundly offensive, unacceptable, undermining their sense of unique place and belonging, being good and right over and against other nations. And for us today, Jesus' universal offering, his declaration of universal revelation may be similarly offensive, right? The temptation toward religiosity is real for us. The temptation to believe that our belonging is a matter of our intellectual prowess, our moral fortitude, our good taste. Jesus' words here are difficult to accept and they don't make it easy on us, right? The flip side of this is it's available to everyone, but then in verse 53, he says, if you don't feed on me, you have no life in you. Jesus is not saying, he's not like uh, confused about like your biological status. What he's saying is your life is completely lacking 
in what is necessary for you to be satisfied in and of yourself. That is a difficult word for us to hear. He's not saying like you get 85% of the, the way there with your education and the good things that you do, voting for the right people, thinking the right things. He's like, you have no life in you unless you eat me, unless you receive my body, my blood. Jesus' declaration that he's this gift of his life, this flesh, is available for anyone who would receive, anyone who draw it, it undermines our pride. It undermines our sense of our, our ability to satisfy ourselves. Our efforts, our good works, our Jesus is saying utterly meaningless in this regard. Our task is to receive. If you eat a remarkable meal, no one says compliments to the consumer, right? Like really good job eating. No, they say compliments to the chef. You simply received what was given. You were graced with this gift. For those of us who are rule followers, who take pride in doing what is right consistently, who long to get it right, there is this scandalous dimension to Jesus' open and free offering of himself. It undermines our pride. It makes us acknowledge our lack. We want to be in control. We want to be authors of our own satisfaction. And his declarations do not allow for that. But in his words, there is also such relief, such freedom. Freedom from striving, freedom from earning, and freedom to see ourselves rightly as lacking, not having it together. Freedom to see ourselves as joyful recipients, eager to receive what he offers. And the, that ability, that ability to see ourselves as joyful recipients allows for a delight, a lightness in life that cannot be taken away, that is lasting, that is pervasive. This week, Shannon, my wife and I, watched a testimony on TikTok, of all places, from an ex-convict in New York City. And this ex-con described how some 30 years ago, while in prison, having lost his freedom and his family, he had heard the gospel from three women who were there to preach. And his description of his conversion was so basic. He simply says in the video that he like heard what they said, and he was like, yeah, I agree. That's true, I accept. That was it. He simply received it. He was drawn near by the Father. And what most stood out was his affect, his disposition. Even in trying circumstances, trying to make ends meet in New York City with a criminal record, having missed so much of his kids' and grandkids' lives, his disposition was marked by this pervasive and authentic joy. Delight in the grace of God, in the gift of God himself. I want that satisfaction. I want that satisfaction for you, for us. Would that the church in Austin be known as a people who are satisfied, who have found their longings in life, for life, fulfilled. That happens, Jesus is saying, only in and through him. And God's desire for you, for us as a community, is that the depths of this truth would lay hold of us such that our lives would be made new in fulfillment and wonder at the goodness of God in giving us what we need, giving us himself. You might be here and you're like, I'm with Bruce Springsteen. I feel the longings. 
I have such deep longings. I have Jesus. I long for these things. What does it look like to live this satisfied life? That brings us to journey and our closing heading. Don't stop believing. Don't stop feeding. Our family only really eats McDonald's in very specific circumstances. <laughs> on road trips, right? We're pushing hard, we're trying to make good time, putting off hunger and stops as long as we can until it cannot be ignored any longer. And we're desperate and in some small town in West Texas where there's really only one option. And at that point, we're all so hangry, we don't even care. And it is glorious, it tastes so good food we wouldn't normally eat, and then a half an hour later, you're like, I have made a terrible decision. <laughs> it might be the same for you, similar circumstances. Normally, I wouldn't eat this, but I'm just so famished, anything will do. That happens in our lives spiritually as well. We have hungry hearts, and they can drive us to do things we cannot explain, we wouldn't rationally name, choose as our desire. And with those kind of appetites, those longings in us, we can emphasize prohibition, right? The negative. Don't touch, don't taste, don't feed that desire. And that has its place. But that only gets you so far. At a certain point, the hunger, the longings overwhelm you. And Jesus' words here in John 6 are not a call to prohibition. Rather, they're this positive vision of feeding on him, upon the truth of God's goodness and love. You cannot simply avoid junk food, crummy food. You have to be filled with the good. There is an, an ongoing dimension to our reception of Jesus as the bread of life. In, in verse 47, Jesus says, very truly, literally, amen, amen. It's kind of like, heads up, something important. He says, truly, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. That verb believe there has a continuous force. Belief as this ongoing mode of being. That connects with our, our passage from Romans 12, right? Offer yourself, Paul's famous words, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, an ongoing way of life. Living sacrifices are prone to crawl off the altar, right? You have to daily keep doing it. Jesus' references here to his blood, especially, but also his flesh, they point us to the cross, to his finished work for our benefit. And there's a one-time reception of that work, accepting by faith that he has rescued, he has delivered us. But the reference to flesh and blood, eating and drinking, feeding, also point us to this table. And an ongoing, the ongoing expression of our belief in receiving Jesus. Jesus calls us in verse 56, remain in me. Think of John 15, remain in me. If you want to live a productive life, if you want to live a fruitful life, remain in me. Remain in me by feeding on me. Jesus calls us to remain in him. One of the ways we persist in our reception of Jesus is through this sacramental act. We rehearse our reception of Jesus as we come here in faith receiving his body and blood as spiritual food and drink, the stuff that satisfies the good food that satisfies our longings such that we can enter the world and not fall for the lies, not fall for the promises, the empty promises of things that will not satisfy. 
trusting here that our longings are satisfied in him, that Jesus is the bread of life, the bread we most deeply and desperately need, that we might live, and that we might live in a life-giving way, bearing fruit, as he says in John 15. And what we do here is intended to be a pattern for the whole of our lives, the rest of our lives. We're called to live Eucharistically, gratefully, joyfully receiving the truth that in Jesus' work on the cross, the finished work that we need has been completed. It's not up to our toil. And gratefully and joyfully receiving the truth that as we're drawn near to him by faith, we receive what we most hunger after, what our hearts long for. There is a way of life of being drawn near and receiving Jesus. In scripture, right, Jeremiah 15, eat these, this book, eat these words in the worship of God's people at this table and in our hearts and our minds, calling to mind, whatever it is that helps you do that, calling to mind the remembrance of God's love for you, of all that he has done for you, feasting on this reality that God loves you, that he desires to satisfy you, and that he alone is the one who satisfies us. May we be a people who live eucharistically. May we be a people who live satisfied, who receive Jesus as the bread of life. You have a hungry heart, but God has provided for you in himself all that you most desperately need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.